We now return to the first book of Samuel to find David turning the tables on Saul in a sharp rebuke for his treachery. This is the 54th sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from 1 Samuel and chapter 26. 1 Samuel and chapter 26. I'll be reading the entire chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 26. In the wilderness of Ziph, David spares Saul once again. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And the Ziphites came unto Saul to Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself in the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jishim? And Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul pitched in the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshem, by the way, but David abode in the wilderness. And he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul was come in very deed. And David arose and came to the place where Saul had pitched. And David beheld the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the captain of his hosts, and Saul lay in the trench. And the people pitched round about him. Then answered David and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, brother to Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul to the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with thee. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping within the trench, and his spear stuck in the ground at his bolster. But Abner and the people lay round about him. Then said Abishai to David, God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now therefore let me smite him, I pray thee, with the spear even to the earth at once, and I will not smite him the second time. And David said unto Abishai, Destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said furthermore, As the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. But I pray thee, take thou now the spear that is at his bolster and the cruise of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's bolster and they got them away. And no man saw it, nor knew it, neither awakened. For they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord was fallen upon them. And David went over to the other side and stood on the top of an hill afar off, a great space between them. And David cried to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Answerest thou not, Abner? And Abner answered and said, Who art thou that criest to the king? And David said to Abner, Art not thou a valiant man? And who is like to thee in Israel? Wherefore then hast thou not kept thy lord the king? For they came one of the people in to destroy the king thy lord. This thing is not good that thou hast done. As the Lord liveth, ye are worthy to die, because ye have not kept your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is, and the cruise of water that was at his bolster. And Saul knew David's voice and said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Wherefore doth my lord thus pursue after his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in mine hand? Now therefore I pray thee, 
let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord hath stirred thee up against me, let him accept an offering. But if they be the children of men, cursed be they before the Lord. For they have driven me out of this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one doth hunt a partridge in the mountains. And Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool, and have erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Behold the king's spear, and let one of the young men come over and fetch it. The Lord rendered to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered thee into my hand today. But I would not stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much set by thee this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord. And let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David. Thou shalt both do great things and also shall still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. The Hebrew writer, writing in Hebrews in chapter 10, beginning in verse 26 through verse 31, by the same Spirit, the Apostle writes, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy unto two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now once again, we find the reprobate servants of the tyrant king playing homage by exposing David's whereabouts. They were spying, obviously, the people of Ziph. They were spying, obviously, on David. And they were now showing the king, King Saul, where David was. And the Ziphites came unto Saul to Gibeah, saying, notice what the Ziphites are saying. They were watching David. They were following him. They were charting his every move. Doth not David hide himself in the hill of Hekalah? which is before Jeshimon. Now, this is the second time that this tribe, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. This is the second time that this, this tribe sought to turn innocent David over to the wicked, murderous hands of Saul and his army. Now, during Adolf Hitler's rise to power, he relied on two primary groups, the brown shirts and the black shirts. Both of these were criminal organizations. The brown shirts were the stormtroopers of Germany and the highly feared black shirts of the SS Secret Service. Now these two groups, these, these spying reprobates, these groups helped Hitler 
gain power through the use of their strong arm street tactics and their spying capabilities, much like the people of the Ziphites. According to the website Facing History, we read this. As the Nazis worked to consolidate their power and build a cohesive national community, suppression of dissent played a key role. In 1933, the Nazis issued a decree that required Germans to turn in anyone who spoke against the party, its leaders, or the government. That decree was for the defense against malicious attacks against the government. And it stated this. Whoever purposely makes or circulates a statement of factual nature which is untrue or grossly exaggerated or which may seriously harm the welfare of the Reich or of the state or of the reputation of the national government or of the state government or of parties or organizations supporting these governments, it is to be punished provided that no more severe punishment is decreed in other regulations with imprisonment up to two years and if he makes or spreads the statement publicly with imprisonment of not less than three months. If serious damage to the Reich or a state has resulted from this deed, penal servitude may be imposed. Number three, whoever commits an act through negligence will be punished with imprisonment of up to three months or by a fine. It goes on to say this, to enforce the decrees, the Nazis set up special courts to try people who were accused of quote-unquote malicious attacks. Now, in China, the Communist Party has set up what is known as a social credit system whereby anyone who dissents against the CCP is then blackballed. The web continues and says this. In December of 1934, the government replaced the decree with the, quote, law against malicious attacks on state and party, unquote, adding a clause that criminalized malicious, rabble-rousing remarks or those indicating a base mentality against the Nazi party or high-ranking government or party officials. That was in the 1930s in Nazi Germany. Here in America, as it was in Germany, as it was in Seoul's day, we have seen this very idea fleshed out in the January 6th event labeling these people rabble-rousers and malicious people who wanted to overthrow the government. In fact, our own American government has labeled, identified mothers of children as domestic terrorists because they wanted their children to not be perverted by the curriculums about sex education. And because they spoke out against the state, and the priesthood of the education system, they were labeled as terrorists. But this strategy, whereby the governing system both spies on its own citizens, while also limiting what they say, Facebook, Twitter, etc., not only saying, but what they're doing, was not native to Saul's command or the situation that we find in Nazi Germany. In fact, these are things which we find in modern America. But not only modern America today, but America in time past. There is nothing new under the sun. Similar tactics, like Saul's spying, like Hitler's spying, like Twitter, like Facebook, like YouTube... These tactics were used in the United States as early as the 1900s, the early 1900s, by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, 
with explicit clearances from the President of the United States. According to author Tim Weiner, he says this, On August 1st, 1919, Edgar Hoover became the Chief of the Justice Department's newly created Radical Division. The Bureau launched its first national, nationwide domestic surveillance programs under the Espionage Act of 1917. Now, we don't remember that because I don't think any of us were born in 1917 or even could remember. But they launched this program, a surveillance program called the Espionage Act of 1917, rounding up radicals, wiretapping conversations, and opening mail. The Espionage Act made possession of information that could harm America punishable by death imprisonment awaited anyone who would order, print, write, or publish disloyal ideas. Who do you think would define those disloyal ideas but the FBI? He continues, more than 1,000 people were convicted under the Espionage Act. Not one was a spy. Most were political dissidents who spoke against the war. The crimes were words, not deeds. That comes from his book, Enemies, the History of the FBI. Now it seems that the Ziphites were using the strategies of spying in the same way Hitler and the FBI used them in the past. And so there's nothing new under the sun, especially when it comes to intimidation, government tyranny, and overreach. What is truly sorrowful, however, about the betrayal of David, as we have seen, and what has happened in our own history, is that it came from David's own brethren in the same way as when Judas and the Pharisees betrayed Jesus to the Roman Pontius Pilate. Now one question we might ask is, didn't David learn his lesson the first time when he was betrayed by this tribe? Why would he continue hiding in the land of the Ziphites if he knew that the Ziphites were spying on him? Now if he didn't know that he was being betrayed, then shame on him. But if he did, why? Did he have a plan? Did he really want the Ziphites to tell Saul where he was? Now, hearing that David was still among the Ziphites, Saul rallies the same 3,000 men of war to hunt the Lord's anointed. But David knew, because he had his own spies. He knew that Saul was not going to give up. He knew that the Ziphites were turning him in. And he knew that Saul would come against him with the 3,000 men of war to hunt the Lord's anointed David himself. And so he pitches in the hill where David hides in the wilderness. He knew He allowed himself to be spied upon so he can lure Saul into his snare. David knew that Saul was not going to give up. Now it must have been very difficult for Saul to sneak into the area of Ziph with 3,000 men. However, once Saul does complete his approach into that area and establish his camp, David sends his own spies to confirm Saul's arrival, to set himself up to ensnare Saul in his trap. Gathers his own men, gathers his own intel, and spies on Saul. Notice verse 4. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul was finally come in to do this very deed. Consider David's plan for Saul's further humiliation. Now remember, he was already humiliated once. This will be Saul's second humiliation, and this will be Saul's second warning. Observe the situation, verse 5 and following. David arose and came to the place where Saul had pitched, David beheld the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the captain of his host, and Saul lay in the trench, it's important, he was in a trench, and the people were all around him. 
Then answered David and said unto Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, brother to Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul and to the camp? And Abishai, of course, thinking that David was going to smite Saul, said, I'll go with you, murderous Abishai. And so David and Abishai went down to the people by night. Saul was sleeping because, as we read, God had put a deep sleep upon him. He's in the trench. His spear is stuck into the ground at his head. And Abner and the people were round about him. That is the scenario. Saul was now in David's reach and could easily have been slain. No one was paying attention. Everyone was in in a coma. Even Saul's war chief, Abner, was asleep, which should have been on watch. David could have made a short work of both Saul and Abner. He could have been taking now this place, at this time and place, he could have been taking position as king and by assassinating Saul, he could have then began to reign as king. Abishai, of course, agrees to sneak up into Saul's camp in order to work with David to execute Saul and bring David into his rightful reign. But Saul was not to be slain. David's plan was not what Abishai imagined. Abishai was a murderous man. He wanted to kill Saul. He wanted David to kill Saul. In fact, he said he would kill Saul. You don't have to do the deed. I'll do the deed. He thought it was God's will since Saul was now in David's reach and everyone else was asleep. But he was mistaken. And again, we find these men mistaken, thinking that God's providence was one thing, and yet it was something totally different. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping within the trench, and his spear stuck in the ground at his bolster, Abner and the people around about him. Then Abishai said to David, God had delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Not so. So he asks, he said, let me smite him now, I pray you, I'm begging you, let me kill the man with the spear. Let me use his spear to kill him, even to the earth at once. Because he is such an earthly tyrant. Well, smite him to the earth where he belongs, and I will not smite him the second time. Now this providence seemed to be right. It seemed to be, in Abishai's mind, God providing this divine setup where David could actually slay Saul, but it was not that at all. It was a test. And sometimes our providences are a test. Sometimes we say, you know, I just want to, God has done this, and I know he's telling me to do this, but it's not that. It's a test. It's a test of our character. It was a test of David's character. It was a test to see whether or not David would kill Saul in order to take the kingdom for himself by force. But Abishai was convinced that God wanted David to kill Saul, but he was dead wrong. David had already set the precedence that Saul was not to be killed by David's hand. And I believe Abishai knew that. They were all in the cave when Saul was in the cave. They knew that that was not David's will. And this is why he offered himself to kill Saul. What Abishai failed to understand was the principle behind David's decision. Even though Saul was a tyrant, he was not to be slain by David. Vengeance had to come from the Lord. And that's what David said. Maybe he'll be in battle, he'll die. Maybe the Lord will take him. Maybe this or maybe that. But I'm not going to be involved. Vengeance must be the Lord's. But why was David able to resist taking the judgment of God into his own hands? What a temptation this was. An incredible temptation. Everything seemed to be right. The second time, maybe David could have been saying, well, you know, the first time I showed mercy, 
But maybe I did the wrong thing and now God is saying, I'm going to give you a second chance, now you kill him. Why was he able to resist this? Well, there are a number of possibilities. Number one, I believe it's because he knew that God had promised the kingdom to David. Trusting the word of God, he was assured that it would happen according to God's timetable. Secondly, David may also have hesitated to kill Saul since Saul was still Jonathan's and Michal's father. Could you imagine? What kind of a man would he have been if he assassinated his father-in-law? Michal's father, Jonathan's father. And that might have given him a moment to pause. Thirdly, he may also have had an idea as to the type of man Abishai was. Impetuous, murderous, cunning, slithering, ready to take violence into his own hands. Without a second thought, without restraint. We shall see later on that this is exactly what type of man he was, Abishai. Furthermore, Abishai had no respect for the office of the king unless it suited him. While he wouldn't hesitate to kill Saul for being a bloody man, he had no problem killing a man who would indict David from being a bloody man. And so we see that Abishai was hypocritical and inconsistent in his use of force. David then puts the man in his place, and that for his own good, and he says to Abishai, Don't destroy him, destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Who do you think you are? A number of things are present here which commends David's character once again. Notice what he says to Abishai. He is sensitive firstly to who God anoints. This was God's man, and David knew that all along. This was God's man. Saul was God's man, even though Saul was a tyrant. David understood that that no one should interfere with God's lesson of chastisement until God says so. He was willing to continue suffering under the wrath of Saul until God said very clearly, kill the man, or I'll kill the man. And this is how we ought to look at our situation today under the tyranny of man. We've got to be very careful. If we seek to frustrate God's plan for total humiliation, we will simply be prolonging our suffering. We are being brought under the dark cloud of tyranny for our good. For our good. Because chastisement, which I believe America is going through, chastisement must come to its maturity. It must, as the scripture says, yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And I don't think we've suffered enough. Because we're still worldly. The churches are still spewing out the prosperity message. They're still hiding their heads in the sand. The rebellious of our nation must be brought to their knees, including those in the churches and especially those in the churches, so that they may choose only the good and not the evil going forward. You know, sometimes, you know, we talk about the reformers of the Presbyterians as the frozen chosen. Because we're not examining ourselves. We're saying, well, you know, well, we've got all our ducks in a row. We know this, and we know that, and we know this, and we know the other thing, and we know all these wonderful things. As if that's Christianity. Remember, the thief knew nothing. The thief on the cross knew nothing. And yet, God had chosen him. We need to have the chastisement poured upon us so that we would have it yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. We must be brought to our knees. Because if the work of God's chastisement is cut short, our nation may have to undergo another period like this in the future, even worse than this, when our children and our grandchildren come of age 
And who knows if they're going to be able to navigate that period successfully? Who knows if they're going to have the grit that we have? Or the theological consistency to do what David did? Number two, David also doesn't want any blood guilt placed on Abishai. He knew who Abishai was. But he doesn't want him to be guilty either. He's even thinking out loud for this man's benefit. You don't want to be guilty. So no, don't slay Saul. Obviously, that would, if Abishai killed Saul, that would implicate him as well. But it seems that he really wants to avoid any blood guiltiness upon those in his charge. Thirdly, David knew that since he had been anointed as the future king, God was going to destroy Saul eventually. Eventually. In his timing, according to his way, in the most destructive fashion possibly, in the most humiliating way possibly. And so he tells Abishai, destroy him not. Furthermore, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him. Notice, he is absolutely convinced. We need to be absolutely convinced that the Lord, in his timing, will slay the wicked. The Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die. In other words, he'll just die. How many do we know who have been so wicked in the halls of government who have died? Not to be slanders, but I can name a whole bunch. Senators, congressmen, presidents, justices, the Lord shall smite him. Or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. What a humiliation that would be. So he tells Abishai, the Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. Still calling Saul the Lord's anointed. David then shares his plan with the sons of Zeruiah and proceeds to act upon it. He says, but I pray thee, take now the spear that is in near his bolster, near his headpiece, and the cruise of water. So he's going to take the spear that's by his head and the water and steal it away and take it back to where he was. So David takes the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's bolster and they get them away. No man sees it because God had provided a way for them to escape without being noticed. He puts a deep sleep from the Lord upon them even a judgment sleep, if you will. So David's plan was similar to the first. Humiliate Saul. That was what you do to a narcissist. You humiliate him in front of his entire army in addition to vindicating himself as innocent of any misdoings. Do you think that today when we listen to the, the, the POTUS speak on the, on the tube that he is not humiliating himself in front of his whole nation, in front of his whole party? A great humiliation. We just have to sit back and watch God work. Humiliate Saul. Humiliate the tyrant in front of his entire army. In addition to vindicating himself, David as innocent of any misdoings. So David takes the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's bolster and they get them away. No man sees it because the sleep was fallen upon them. So God had put the entire army into this deep sleep so that no man would awaken when David and Abishai took the spear in the water. The first and most, the first and most obvious lesson, the first and most obvious lesson is the extent of God's sovereignty over man. Notice what God is doing. He's setting up this entire scenario for David causing this deep sleep in order to protect David, 
allowing him to make his point to Saul and the entire army that Saul was a wicked man and an illegitimate ruler. And so he sneaks down to the camp. He takes Saul's weapon of war and his provision of water. Now, to take the spear from Saul was a symbolic gesture declaring that Saul no longer could defend his position as king. It actually acted like his scepter, his weapon of warfare. It was symbolic. In fact, David's taking that weapon of warfare was a symbolic gesture declaring a transference of power and authority from Saul to David. So David takes the spear and the water, a transference of power from Saul, the tyrant, to David, the righteous, and he goes back into his hold. Now remember, this has taken place in the desert wilderness. Water, at that point, Saul's got 3,000 men. Water was very scarce. It's in the desert wilderness. But David takes the water. Water was the most precious commodity of life for the soldier. To confiscate water, that water ration, especially from the king, was to place that individual, Saul himself, in extreme danger of rapid dehydration. It would also prohibit any exertion of any kind for battle. David confiscates both these articles, which for a man of war was very, very, very hurtful, very humiliating. Without the weapons of warfare, without the water, Saul was polarized. Without these tools, he could no longer exercise his duty, and certainly he could not assassinate David by his own hand, as he tried to do before, by throwing his spear, his javelin at David, when he sang before Saul in his temple. There are a number of spiritual significations here. First, this is still the battle between the seeds. The seed of the woman, David, and the seed of the serpent, Saul. It's still a battle from Adam's race to Christ's race. Secondly, the spear was at Saul's head, as if to symbolize the ultimate crushing of his head. You see, the word bolster can be translated as headpiece. The spear was by his headpiece, representing the head or perhaps even a helmet. And all David had to do, if he was mindful to do that, was take the spear and crush Saul's head. Symbolically, he was crushing Saul's head because that is the theme of Scripture, the crushing of the head of Genesis 3 throughout Scripture. Thirdly, Saul was in a deep sleep, in a trench, perhaps symbolizing that he was dead and buried Once the stage then was set for Saul's humiliation, David positions himself on a hill and the scripture cryptically says, with a great space between them. I'm reminded of the the account of Christ picturing himself as Abraham when Lazarus goes into Abraham's bosom and the rich man is on the other side calling, tormented in flames, calling out to Abraham, And the scripture says cryptically, there was a great space between them. David then couches his indictment in covenantal terms against Abner for his failure to protect the kingdom. Notice what he says, verse 14. And David cried to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Answerest thou not, Abner, you are at fault. Obviously angry and somewhat embarrassed, Abner tries to turn the tables against David. Then Abner answered and said, Who art thou that cries to the king? But David, notice, so confident, so bold. You've got 3,000 men, just a stone's throw away, so confident. 
in his God. In his response, boldly responding, not intimidated at all, he says to Abner, Are not thou a valiant man? You claim to be such a valiant man. And who is like to thee in Israel? You're so great. You think you're so great. You think you're so strong. You think you're so smart. Then why have you not kept the Lord, your Lord, the king protected? Is what he's saying. Because someone came to destroy the king. Your Lord. How does that happen, Abner? This thing is not good that thou hast done. Notice he's indicting the war chief. He's indicting Abner the war chief. As the Lord liveth, as Yahweh liveth, ye are worthy to die. Notice the indictment. You are worthy to die. Not me, in other words. I'm not worthy. You're worthy to die because you have not kept your master, the Lord's anointed. I have kept my master, the Lord's anointed, safe. I have not allowed Abishai to kill him. I didn't kill him in the cave. But you, if I was a different man, you would be now guilty of the blood of Saul. Now look and see where the king's spear is and the cruise of water that was at his headstone. By his helmet, by his bolster, didn't crush his head, where is it now? So instead of Abner turning the tables on David, David turns the tables on Abner. David indicts Abner for allowing the transference of power from Saul to David symbolically. And they knew exactly what that meant. You just humiliated the king. Now hearing this, Saul recognizes David's voice. And he calls out to him. David answers in verse 17. And Saul knew David's voice and said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice. Notice, my lord, O king. Notice, a consistent respect for the man. His respect for Saul, even at this critical moment, my lord, O king, still recognizing Saul as his lord and the king of Israel. But then... Because this is what has to happen. There must be a rebuke of righteousness against the wickedness of Saul. Then David opens up a legal discourse. Notice, he is standing as the judge against the king. He opens up a legal discourse asking for evidence for what Saul's desire is or was to execute David. What is your your evidence against me? He's holding court. David asks several questions in his argument. Wherefore doth my Lord thus pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil is in mine hand? You must prove to me what I have done wrong. Notice, this is a legal court situation. David first identifies himself as Saul's servant in order to remind Saul that he has been faithful to the king. And as king, he has to judge righteous judgment. This identifying label Personalized. This identifying label personalizes David to Saul. Oh, my Lord, the King, what have I done? Give me the evidence. Secondly, David asks, is what I have done to warrant death? What evil have I had as the intentions against you? Where is my heart? Is it evil? Have I considered evil against you? Then David asks, 
who instigated Saul's hatred against him. Did the Lord, was this from God? Did you get a a message from God that is saying you should go after David because David has ill against you? Or were you listening to the people? If it was God, he says, then God would accept an offering from David for forgiveness. What David is saying is that even God would accept a peace offering. If God would accept a peace offering, why have you not accepted a peace offering from me, which he did have given? Why would you not have accepted a peace offering from me, which I would have given? But if men had enticed Saul, then they should be cursed. If there's no evidence against David, then these men who enticed Saul to kill David, then they should be cursed for driving David from abiding in God's inheritance as the king's son-in-law, where he might be persuaded to serve other gods. Notice what he says, verse 19 and following. Now therefore I pray thee, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred up thee against me, let him accept an offering. But if they be the children of men, cursed be they before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Where will I go? If I'm not in Israel, if I'm not in the king's court, where am I going to go? I'm going to have to go and serve other gods. Notice how bad this was for me. Now David does something then very, very clever. He likens himself to a flea and a partridge, a a little pigeon. As if to say that he's nothing and there is no worth in him, in and of himself. There's no worth in David. Now therefore, verse 20, let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea and one that doth hunt a partridge in the mountains. Now what's interesting about David's choice of words is that he uses an insect and a bird, which is very Difficult to take hold of. How how do you grab a flea? It's hard. They hop, they jump, they jump all over. It's very hard to grab a flea. And that's basically what was happening to Saul. Saul was trying to grab this flea and David just kept skirting around the issue. Saul couldn't get him. You couldn't even get a bird because the bird would fly away and you can't fly after the bird. So he's likening himself to a flea which is very hard to catch and a bird which is very hard to catch. A flea is also not only hard to catch but difficult to see. It's also a parasite. David may have been insinuating that since he was perceived by Saul as a parasite, he had to be eliminated. David also likens himself to a partridge, which is very interesting because the Hebrew word used here for partridge identifies the bird as a caller or a bird who calls out. Perhaps David is saying that he is like this calling bird who has been calling out to Saul from a distance to make him stop hunting him. Perhaps there is another reason why David uses this bird to identify himself. The partridge here is actually a sand partridge, which is known as a running bird which speeds along the ground and also a very particular bird, very hard to catch. Not just a bird who flies, but a bird who is very hard to catch. And so David is to Saul as someone who is hard to see, almost impossible to catch, as a result, is running speedily away from Saul's captives and was perceived by Saul as a parasite. Why are you coming after me? I'm a nobody. I'm nothing. There is, however, a, another allusion to the gospel here as well. 
the partridge was also an acceptable sacrifice that poor families used as an offering since they were able to afford a sheep or a cow. When God cut the covenant with Abram in Genesis chapter 15, he was told to kill the animals that were to be used for the sacrifice, but the two partridges, the two turtle doves, were not to be killed. The two birds represented the believers, which would be spared as a result of the blood sacrifice and the covenant oath. David, therefore, is identifying himself with the partridge as one who God has spared over and over and over from Saul's tyranny as a result of the sacrifice of Christ represented by Abram's slain animals of Genesis chapter 15. As to the flea, once again, a lowly insect. A mere puny insect. I assume that David is testifying that he is merely a lowly flea insect in the same way that Christ likens himself to being a worm and not a man while on the cross pointing back to David's own words of Psalm 22. David confronts Saul in the most incredible way, humiliating him once again and bringing him seemingly to his knees when he says, I have sinned. Return my son David, for I will no more do thee harm. Because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day, behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. We shall consider Saul's words of repentance when we examine the next sequence of events in First Samuel chapter 26. And this we shall do God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.